Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today's episode is for the sweet tooths as we dedicate our show to all things sugary. Coming up, we sit down with one of the UK's most sought-after bakers, Lily Vanilli. I did, for one Valentine's Day, this woman wanted a lifelike replica of her boyfriend's head in a box. And I took it to the um, agency where he worked and the receptionist recognised him from the cake. She's like, oh yeah, Paddy, fourth floor. Also on the programme, we learn all about the French tradition of nougat making. Uh, when I have my own pastry shop, at first I prepare just a small nougat every day. And it was enough to put in, uh, in the shop. It just uh, for, for the show was not for sale, but it became more and more popular. Plus, Fernando Augusto Pacheco joins us for a very special biscuit edition of the Global Countdown. All that here on the menu on Monaco Radio. East London's Columbia Road may be famous for its flowers, but that's not all it has to offer. Just off the main parade of shops and through a small cupboard courtyard, you'll find the Lily Vanilli Bakery, which has been serving all manner of sweet treats since it's opened its doors in 2010. From Elton John's birthday cake to baking for Madonna and supplying her delicious goods to fashion week parties, Lily's career has taken her way beyond her London outpost. On a crisp February morning, Monocle's Paige Reynolds headed down to the Lily Vanilli HQ to get a taste for the hustle and bustle and find out more. It's Thursday, so we've got a slightly edited menu from what we'd have on the weekend. Just smaller portions, more like bite-sized stuff. That's baker Lily Jones, a.k.a. Lily Vanilli, bopping around her eponymous East London bakery that's captivated the hearts of sweet treats lovers far and wide since it opened in 2010. She's showing me what's on offer. We've got our sausage roll, which is really delicious Cornish sausage meat, and then we roast bacon lardons inside a vinegar and then put that through the mix. And then we have our veggie version, cheddar, feta, and spinach scones, which are really good. Salt caramel brownies. Um, we got some specials today, mini salt caramel chocolate tarts and, and little chocolate cakes. And then we've always got a few layer cakes and you know highly decorated cakes on the, on the counter, vegan brownie simple stuff for the week and then we've got much more range on on a Sunday and loads of cakes. Behind the nibbles on the front counter Lily and her team are preparing for afternoon tea at the Theatre Royale Jury Lane. A job they do 363 out of 365 days a year. The talented four-person team delivers up to 300 covers of highly decorative baked goods every day. I slink over to find out more. Hi. Hello. <laughs> okay. You must be Paige. Yeah. Nice to meet you. How's, How's it going? Good, thank you. Good. Coffee, tea, cake, something. Wow. Whatever, something. Oh wow. Can I ask you what is going on here? There's like blue, little yeah, these, Oh. These blue molds are chocolate molds. They're like silicon chocolate molds, and I'm just filling them with some tempered chocolate. And we're gonna make little baby cherubs. So I'm gonna wait for them to set, and then I'm gonna flip them out. Baby There's a lot going on, so I asked Lily to give us the full lowdown. It's kind of a standard day in the bakery, and it's noon. So at this point, we're baking all of the layer cakes, which will ice for cake orders later on. 
And while those are in the oven, we're prepping that afternoon tea. So Megan's molding our kind of handmade chocolates, which we use in decoration for things, uh, including the tea service. Raker's icing all of the, this is probably about 200 portions of cake, which will go to the afternoon tea. Darren's making sticky toffee pudding, again, like three, 400. We're making salt caramel popcorn, which is really light and crunchy, which we use just as a kind of decoration on some things. So we're kind of in like prep stage of the day. And then once the cakes are cooled, we'll ice and decorate those. And, and that's it. In addition to afternoon tea, Lily and her team open the bakery from Thursdays to Sundays to the public, make a variety of to-order birthday, wedding or really any special occasion cakes throughout the week and they also regularly collaborate with major fashion brands and other F&B businesses. It's a highly impressive operation spearheaded by a highly impressive woman. Over a couple of shrimp empanada at a nearby deli, Lily tells me where it all began. It was the 2008 financial crash, and I was just struggling to find work. I was super broke, and I had always baked as a hobby, and I just started selling cakes to put money on the electric to be able to afford the day-to-day. And yeah, I've been thinking, I've been reflecting on it a lot because it's been 15 years, but it was never intended to be a business. It was kind of a means to an end when I was struggling to find a job, but also... It's wild because that was such a different time and the landscape of British food has just changed so much since then. There were no kind of similar businesses. There were no kind of small creative modern bakeries. And I saw that these American brands like Primrose and Hummingbird were about to open in the UK. I was like, maybe this is going to be a thing. And I, I mean, I had no business being there. I didn't have a website, but suddenly I had customers and within six months I was baking for Elton John, like private parties. I had a concession Harrods and a book deal. It kind of was this just like extraordinary thing. An extraordinary thing, and even more extraordinary, that it all began well before Lily had her Columbia Road home. There are another two Lily Vanilli bakeries, but they're rather far from the East London hub. If there's a queue outside the Columbia Road adjacent flagship, the next Lily Vanilli you'll find is located in the Georgian capital of Tbilisi. Lily takes me through how this rather unusual expansion came about. I just got an email out of the blue from a stranger who's now a dear friend, and he invited me to Georgia. We spent a week hanging out, and then at the end of the week, he's like, okay, let's open a bakery together. And the way he pitched the idea to me, he's like, marriage here is like first base. He's like, I already got two ex-wives, you know, he's like 30. And people get married like the old days. They're like, let's get married on Friday. And then they have huge weddings, you know, like 900-person weddings, huge cake. The kinds of weddings which, if I did in the UK, we'd be talking about for three years in advance. They'll just rattle them out at the weekend. So anyway, he's like, we have all these weddings and people have multiple marriages in um, their young lives and they're, they're just no great wedding cakes. So he's, he's like, this is a business opportunity. And yeah, it's going well. They're beautiful. The bakery's there. A lot of the same team have worked on, have been on board since the start and they're just doing a great job. And how often do you get to go and kind of see that all in action? As often as I can. I've been twice in the last few months. It's a great pleasure to spend so much time there. Lily Vanilli is arguably as creative and spontaneous with her franchises as she is with her cake designs. It's hard to predict what the maverick baker is dreaming up next, so where does she go to seek inspiration? 
back when I started, it would be from the cake shops. You know, I'd go to the cake supply shops and um, there'd be like 13 different shades of metallic edible luster spray and isomalts, which you can kind of sculpt. It's like kind of sculptable, hard candy substance or uh, molds for chocolate or you can make your own molds and you know all these kind of dyes and tools and at the start I was making all these weird sculptures and like experimental cakes and that would be where I would go and but this was all like before Instagram and now obviously the fees got got hella inspiration but I really noticed lately the kinds of cakes that I get on my feed they're really in the same kind of style as when I started so like bonkers like asymmetrical metallic like flowers sticking out mad and I feel like I've been doing it long enough now to see it go full circle because when I started out I was making these cakes to like rebel against traditional fondant and wedding cakes and da, da, da. And then in pandemic got really into piping so we were doing like a buttercream version of like Regency piping and these kind of 1980s styles and then there's like a wave of like response to that which is all these like deconstructed like weird cakes which is like where I started it's been fascinating to watch it. Speaking of the deconstructed, or perhaps more accurately, the decomposed, in Lily's almost two decades of professional baking, there's been all kinds of commissions. Lily takes me through some of the weird and the wonderful. Well, I had like three years where I was like the zombie baker. I had a recipe book which was like B-movie inspired, comic book illustrated, zombie themed cake decorating book and off the back of that, I got wild commissions. I was like, I was doing like roadkill, replicas of, of real findings, and then all these kind of beetles and human organs and like mad stuff. I did this zombie wedding for this couple who were like zombie fanatics. They were wearing, I was like lucky enough to be there for the wedding rehearsal, and they, they were like in prosthetics and they did their vows in like zombie voices. There's <laughs> zombie mariachi man. It was in this gothic building and um, I did this cake which was like six feet tall and it was like really traditional white um, classic kind of ice kind of Lambeth method style and, but it had a, a replica of a, a human brain on the top and then like a shard of sugar glass and it was like drenched in blood. <laughs> I used to do stuff like that for years. That was great. I did what, one really memorable one. I did, I did like a, um, a cake which was exhibited as a sculpture at the V&A and it was, and, you know, so it was like on a plinth during the day and then it was cut up and eaten. Loads of fun stuff. I did for, for one Valentine's Day, this woman wanted a lifelike replica of her boyfriend's head in a box. And I took it to the I took it to the um, agency where he worked, and the receptionist recognised him from the cake. She's like, "Oh yeah, Paddy, fourth floor." <laughs> from downright bizarre commissions to outposts in Tbilisi, one thing Lily doesn't shy away from is a challenge. The next on her plate is the Lily Vanilli Birthday Project, an initiative she's currently running in collaboration with the Mayor's Fund for London that aims to get cakes to underprivileged young Londoners who might not otherwise be able to afford them. Donations start from as low as a pound, and each month, however many cakes can be made with the funds raised, will be distributed from eight hubs evenly spread across the capital. Lily explains further. So we were just thinking about how to celebrate our 15th birthday, and I thought it was interesting to reflect on the importance of a birthday cake, which sounds really trite, but I've been doing this for such a long time, and it really is so much more than the sum of its parts. It's kind of this incredibly symbolic, ritualistic thing 
is so bound in tradition. We have almost nothing similar with the way that we eat food. And it's really important that everybody gets that moment. I really believe that everybody should have a birthday cake. It shouldn't be something which has a class divide. And, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis. And if people are struggling to make ends meet or put food on the table through no fault of their own, it might be that a butter cake sits on the list of priorities. It can be an expensive thing, but I think the thing about cakes is it puts the recipient at the center of attention. And we all like cringe, everyone hates the song. We hate that moment, but it's really important to do it. And so we just want to get cakes to as many people as we can who wouldn't have one otherwise. That's fundamentally the idea. For Monocle in London, I'm Paige Reynolds. Thanks, Paige. You're listening to The Menu. Sweet treats don't come much more sugary than nougat. The southern French delicacy is a sticky mix of egg white and dried fruit and nuts. It may be consumed and beloved around the world, but it's in Provence where you find it in its purest form. For some, it's too much of a sugar rush, but finding the perfect balance between ingredients and texture is the secret to a perfect bar. Monaco's Michael Booth headed to the small town of Crestet in the shadow of Mont Ventoux to meet one of the region's best nougatiers, Yves-Robert Tolleron. Yves-Robert has spent half a century refining his craft at Nougat Tolleron. Here, he tells us about the history of the ingredient, its surprising temperament, as well as its very special rockstar customer. I am Yves-Robert Tolleron. I am nougatier in Provence. Oh, yeah, there a yeah. big try of very oh, yeah. warm nougat. Yeah. We are waiting, cooling. We will cut it in, a, in three hours. When it's cold. When it's cold, yeah. Tomorrow morning, yeah. But at the, at the top temperature, it's at uh, 130? 150. 150, yeah. yeah. In fact, it depends the weather. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, 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 there is a lot of moisture inside. It's either a rainy day or it's a windy day. Really? It's, yeah, yeah. It's not the same. Yeah, yeah. Because when we cook, you evaporate the water from, the, from meat, from eggs, from fish, from everything. And say so what we do when we cook our nougat, we try to take out the water. This morning, when we, when we start, for allez, 30 minutes was okay. And uh, during the morning... So is, I need 35 or 36 minutes, depend. Because the atmosphere yeah, changes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, this morning the atmosphere changed. Because when we start, we start minus uh, 2, right? minus 2 degrees outside, and now it's 21. So why is nougat so strong in Provence? What's the tradition? Maybe it's a Greek, because when they came in Provence, when you see the boat, how big they were, we can imagine how they moved this boat. Which energy? There were no sugar in 2000 before Jesus. Then we can imagine they use honey, dry fruit, and walnut. And we imagine, because the, the name of nougat comes from the Latin, is nux gatum, le gâteau de noix. And here in Provence, there were not almond, there were just walnut. And we can imagine with spice with dry food, honey, and says what they eat to move the bones. <laughs> so it's just fuel for rowing Greeks. Yeah. We have to wait the 18th century to find in Nougat the egg white. Who was the first person? Whoa, we don't know. <laughs> Come from Montélimar. Why? Because they were 
lavender and there were a lot of eggs and it's easy for the agriculture. Why there is almond? We can find the almond follow the invasion of Arabian in the Mediterranean control. So the almond replaced the walnuts that was traditional yeah, in Provence? Yeah, because the walnuts are... It's not easy to, to preserve the quality of the walnuts. Uh -huh. And with the almond arrive also apricot, the cousin. After the 18th century, they put egg white in the nougat. And what about your story with nougat? Where did you learn to make it? How? Why? <laughs> I start to, to learn how to, to be a pastry chef. I start, I was 14 years old, and now, say, 50 years ago, <laughs> a long time. It was an old recipe for my grandma, because she, was, she used to live in Aix-en-Provence. And I don't know why, I start to, to prepare some nougat with her. Uh, when I had my own pastry shop, at first, I prepared just a small nougat every day. And it was enough to put in, uh, in the shop, but just uh, for, um, for the show. It was not for sale, but it became more and more popular. We have a Michelin voilà. guide vert. Voilà, c'est ça. Provence. It's a different this. And the, it become, I think, 2003 or something like this. And when it arrived in this book, I wasn't able to, to give nougat, to sell nougat to everybody. The <laughs> so demand was so high. What's the matter? But that sounds like quite uh, innovative and a wide range of flavors like thyme and yeah, licorice. Yeah, absolutely. That's not traditional. No, no, it wasn't. It's my... I dream it. It's very sticky. Oh, well, always, <laughs> always, always sticky because... And we wash... <laughs> and I can see at the back here you have these amazing big copper pans. Is that where you... Why, why copper? Because copper is the best to transfer really quickly the temperature, the heating. Because if we want a really good result, we have to, when we eat sugar, we have to go fast and regular. Can we go into the shop yeah, and yeah, see yeah. some of the varieties? Here's the amazing yeah. display of nougat with orange and myrtles, blueberry, yeah, blueberry. speculoos, ginger, thyme. <laughs> thyme is a really, really funny story. The most famous client, and uh, when he told me who he was, I was crying because I was really in love. He was a big artist, a world-famous artist. And Who was it? Uh, I will tell you. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will. In fact, I came in concert, uh, not far from where I had my pastry shop, and the director of the hotel said, if you want to be quiet in downtown, you can go to see Eve. There is a small tea room, and you have your you can have your breakfast here. And he never called the journalist, and he, you will be quiet. Well, and a guy arrived with sunglasses, bandana, red bandana, jean. Well, one day, two days, three days, four days, and every year in R there were um, festival, les Sud, and there was a program on the wall, and say, is your group here? You have a look, say, no, no, we are not here. Are oh, you a small group? Yes, 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 we are a small group. And what's the name of the group? Say, name, name is David Bowie. Say, David Bowie? No, 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 if you are David Bowie, I'm the Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> he said. And the guy take out the sunglasses and say, in front of you, David Bowie. Wow. And he tried 
all the nougat. <laughs> one piece of each nougat. And he said, I want this one. Okay, then I took the loaf. We continued to send in nougat in Switzerland because he was uh, used to live in Switzerland. And the last big yeah. one who came here Saturday morning with two ladies, I can't believe, said, are you sir Tom Jones? He said, I'm not, I'm not. I said, okay, okay. You are not, <laughs> but you look like <laughs> Michael Booth there speaking to Yves Robert Tolleron. You're listening to The Menu. Biscuits are perhaps the sweet treats par excellence. Every country has its own pantheon of favourites and depending on where you travel in the world, people will eat biscuits, or cookies as some prefer to call them, at different times of day. Breakfast, tea time, snack or dessert, these baked delights serve a myriad of purposes. They're simple buttery ones and filled ones covered in icing, snappy ones or lovely little soft ones that crumble under the fingers. But which country makes the best and who can lay a claim to being the global biscuit champion? We've called on the services of our in-house biscuit expert, Fernando Gusto Pacheco, to put this question to rest. He regaled us with a very special edition of his global countdown, but this time all about the sweet stuff. Fernando, what a joy to have you in the studio to talk about one of the most exciting topics of all, biscuits. Now, keen listeners to Monaco Radio will be very familiar with your Global Countdown format, which you bring to the listeners of the briefing with much joy. Normally you do it for your first and true love, that is pop music, international. But here, we've tasked you with something altogether different. We've asked you to bring in five different kinds of biscuits from five different countries to create the almighty global countdown of the biscuit world. How are you feeling? I am feeling very excited because I think you're right. After pop music, biscuit is another passion of mine. <laughs> If I may say, I think I'm a bit of a biscuit expert. So, you know, I think I quite, you know, my opinion will be quite hefty and hopefully, hopefully you agree with me. It might be controversial, you know, Chiara? Listen, I know you to be a very, very testing man when it comes to the boundaries of taste and <laughs> propriety. So we'll see. Okay, we have many countries to touch on. You're a massive sweet tooth, aren't you? I do. I mean, and, and you know what? The biscuit industry, it keeps on growing. At the moment, it's worth $104.31 billion. dollars. See, I did my research here. But it's expected to grow by $150 billion dollars in the next years. So, you know, people love it. And, you know, it's in Europe, it's in Asia. India is a big market as well. So, you know, people love biscuits. And post-pandemic as well, because there was an interesting research. Because when you're in the office, you have biscuits. Even today, Chiara, there was some biscuits. Upstairs, and we have international biscuits almost every day here in the office. You don't just love them, you study them too. Yes. <laughs> um, it is true, you're an expert. Okay, well, let's start with position number five. Now, I think that this is real indication of the amount of objectivity that you're putting into this endeavor because at number five is. Brazil. See, it's not number one, but I still think Brazil produced the most amazing biscuits uh, in the world. And to be honest, some people say biscuits, some people say bolacha in Brazil. There's all sorts of controversies about the name. But the number five, the type of biscuit I chose, I know it's very broad, but 
artisanal biscuits, or as we call it in Brazil, granny's cookies. Oh. You know, it's the artisanal that I love. And I chose, actually, I have an example for you. I bought in my latest trip to Brazil. It's called Chada Cinco, tea at 5 p.m. It's kind of a, a British connotation, but it's a very simple and they're very small and it's made with... Sugar, butter, cinnamon. I think you should have a taste. This is just an example of those artisanal biscuits I'm telling you. Okay, I'm going in. They're very strange. They almost look like dog biscuits. <laughs> And they're very light as well. They don't feel very heavy on, on your hand. Mm. Now, if there's something that I know about you, mm. Faye, is that in culinary matters, you're one for simplicity. Mm. And it feels like maybe Brazilian baking and Brazilian cuisine is about that a bit. You know, when I think about Brazilian baking, I think about Pau de Queja, and there's virtually nothing in there, right? You think that it's going to get this incredibly cheesy little ball, but it's really just basically bread with a little bit of cheese in it. And this biscuit, it's delicious, but as far as biscuits go, it's on the simple side. It's got a tiny little bit of cinnamon. It's crispy, but it's tiny. It's such a <laughs> weird kind of shell-shaped little bit. <laughs> but I like that because then you eat like 20 of them and you don't feel full. I mean, you're very right. Brazilians are very simple the way they eat. Perhaps not too much feeling on the biscuits. So that's why I said the list might be controversial. I don't like those biscuits with a lot of kind of icing or... Too much, you know. I think simplicity is always best. But don't worry, there will be some feelings. There will be some more, slightly more decorated biscuits coming along our We're going our continent top five. We're yeah. going continental Europe a bit later, maybe. Moving on. UK. Coming close to home. Absolutely. And, you know, the British, first of all, they love talking about biscuits. And they love saying, is Jaffa Cakes a biscuit or... I'm not even entering this contract. I don't have an opinion on that. So <laughs> because we you we we could have revealed here and and for posterity the definitive answer to this conundrum. <laughs> But one thing about the UK I like as well I was I was doing some research. Some of the biscuits they are inflation proof. I mean if you go to the supermarket everything's becoming so expensive. I, you know, it's noticeable. Not biscuits. If you look at the classic ones like Bourbon, you can buy for 30p. Honestly, you can go to Marks and Spencer, Waitrose or any other supermarket here in the country. And the one I chose as well. In fact, you can go to Sainsbury's for 32p and you're going to find a packet of one of the most delicious and very simple sweets from the British cuisine, which is the custard cream. I love it. Apparently, it's been invented in the UK in 1908. And one thing I noticed during my research, well, you can just look at a custard cream and see they're very... I don't know, very Victorian in their design. I think it's quite sweet. Um, well, literally. Quite literally, yeah. Quite literally. And I like the flavor as well. I think custard cream, the trick is don't have more than three. Unlike those cute Brazilian ones, they, they, they can actually be quite sweet. So just have a little bit of a cup of tea. I think that'll be great. Number three. We're heading to France now. And let's. Uh, there's a specific brand, actually, that deserves our third spot. It's Poilan. They make bread, amazing bread. I mean, they used to have, actually, a branch here in the UK. But I think nowadays, their main market is in France. Every time I go to Paris, I go to Le Bon Marché and I buy this specific biscuit. And I have to say, I say I'm buying Paris, but their roots are in Normandy. So it's not a Parisian kind of confectionery. It is called the Punition Biscuit. And again... Let's go back to the simplicity. It's just eggs, fresh butter, flour and sugar. But it's the way they bake it. There's some specific kind of ovens. That's why it tastes so good. It's, it's kind of a shortbread. 
type, but is incredibly delicious and very chic as well, the packaging. Perhaps not like the custard cream we're talking about. So it's an elevated experience, I have to say. An elevated shortbread. Well, I like the idea that wherever you go, you bring a pack of biscuits back. And, you know, here at Midori House, we are quite lucky because people go on trips all the time and we get to try so many treats from around the world. But do you think that biscuits are some of the best souvenirs from an international travel? Absolutely. I mean... Again, just look upstairs, there's always biscuits. Sometimes there's some savory stuff and other kind of types of food, but biscuits are the winners. And, you know, as I said, even post-pandemic, the because the industry was hit, the biscuit industry during the pandemic, because, of course, you can eat biscuits at home, but I think it's quite a social thing as well. If you're having your little chocolate bar, you're not going to share it, right? But if you have biscuits, you share, say, do you want one? So I think there is this social characteristic of the biscuit that is perhaps undervalued, and that's why we're here Talking about biscuits, in a way. And sharing them, which I am very excited about because the next one is actually one of my favourites. I'm very pleased that you picked it. And we're finally going to try something with actual filling in it because I do love you, Fernando, but your taste <laughs> is so clean and so... It's all like just egg and egg white. And... <laughs> Let's just get a little bit down and dirty here. We Come should. on, what, what have we got? We should. I agree with you. Perhaps it's a little bit too simple, but Molino Bianco is a number two. Of course, I think they're part of the Barilla group and they were invented in 1975. And it's funny because... As an Italian, I'm sure you have nostalgia for these biscuits. But I think the brand was built on nostalgia because even the logo for Molino Bianco is like an old mill and, and the names of their biscuits like Abracci, or which means hug, right? Exactly. Um, so I chose Molino Bianco and a specific one. I'll, I'll ask your favorite, but I want you to try this one. It's the Baiocchi Pistacchio. Fernanda, you know how to get to my heart. <laughs> well, obviously, just to take a step back, we are in Italy right now, for those who hadn't oh, gathered. Yes. So, baiocchi are some of my favourites. I'm going to take one, you take another. Yes, definitely. And can I tell you a secret? Mm-hmm. I have baiocchi pistacchio every day. No! Every single day. How do you stay so wonderfully fit? Well, the trick is, no more than three. You know, control yourself, but have it every day. That's my... T- I, mean, I mean, I don't know. What I'm time not- of day do you have them? <laughs> It's kind of my late breakfast, so perhaps <laughs> perhaps around 11 a.m. or something like that. Mm. I mean, I'm open-minded, but... Mm. 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 Okay, so full listeners, the original Bayocco is actually with a kind of Nutella-like filling. This is a variation from the norm, but pistachio cream has become hugely successful and popular in Italy, I guess buoyed by the success of many... Sicilian delicacies. I'm partial to Molino Bianco because they are a taste of childhood. And interestingly, I think people consume biscuits in different ways around the world, right? Some people use them as little treats. Some people use them as kind of afternoon tea type of accompaniments. In Italy, people have biscuits for breakfast with coffee, with very milky coffee. So most Italian biscuits are extremely dry for most other countries' palates. And whenever I bring biscuits back from Italy, people are so disappointed because they open the packet and they just can't even swallow the things. But that's because they're not, that's not how you're meant to eat them. You know, they're big old packets and you open them in the morning and you dip them, you dunk them into your milky coffee and you're off for the day, a sweet breakfast. I don't have it very much anymore, but it does give you a bit of a hit. Now, my favourite, Mulino Bianco. I'm curious. <sighs> I'm very curious. Now. Listen, I feel a bit ashamed saying this because I just told you off for having too simple taste. But my favourite is probably the Taralluccio, which is um, 
eggy, very, very eggy with like a, a, a proper egg wash on the top. And it does have the Molino Bianco logo on it as well. It feels like the original and best. And I can get through a lot of them if not controlled. Some people have real obsessions with Pan di Stelle, which is another big one. Molino Bianco hit internationally. But that's too chocolatey for me. Mm. I'm a more vanilla type girl. Same as me. I think we I think we match biscuit wise. I wouldn't think yeah, Molino Bianco they are kind of growing internationally. I mean, look at the UK. I mean, more and more places are selling them, even when you go to Ocado or to some, which is good. Italian soft power, baby. Oh my god. <laughs> we know how to do that with food, don't we? Okay, finally we have reached the very pinnacle, the top of our biscuit pyramid. There is one biscuit holding and balancing at the top of this precarious structure. What is it? We're going to Japan. Oh, I mean, nice. I think it was kind of expected. But again, I'm choosing another brand in particular. And I have to thank our colleague, Kyoko. She's the one who introduced this brand to my life, Yokumoku. It's a fantastic Japanese confectioner from 1969. They have a selection of biscuits. They have the white chocolate one, which is amazing. But the one I decided to pick is called cigar, which means cig Ooh. cigarette in French, of course. It's amazing. And I'm sorry, Chiara, I might be a little bit repetitive here, but it's paper thin. It's simple. It's elegant. It's classy. It's not very show-offy in a way. It's very chic but understated at the same time. And they have different types of cigars. There's the chocolate version. There's the simple one, which, of course, is my favorite, and one with Earl Grey tea as well. It's quite a specific flavor, but I would recommend. I know they sell online, so if you really want, it might be a little bit expensive if you're outside Japan, but it's worth it. And again, it's the way the Japanese treat something so simple. Clearly, they were inspired by French patisserie, but in somehow they perfected uh, in a way. There's something about going to a department store in mm. Tokyo and just seeing the confectionery aisle where everything is boxed up as if it was literal jewellery that is spectacular and just makes you appreciate the tiny intricacies and, and the perfection that goes into everything. So I think, despite everything and despite our respective patriotism, it's a deserved win. Grazie. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighborhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This program was produced by Monica Lillis and our sound engineer was Jack Dewars. Thanks for listening and until next week.